remain standing with me, uh, church, as we turn once again uh, tonight to Paul's uh, first epistle to Timothy. And we come tonight uh, to chapter 3. I'd like to read uh, verses 1 through 7, uh, although admittedly um, much of this is by way of preview that, Lord willing, we will cover uh, more fully next time, as I'll spend, I think, most of the time this evening uh, considering verse 1 and its implications. Uh, so this is the word of the Lord, First uh, Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 7. Hear now uh, the word of God. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, uh, he desires a good work. Uh, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God. Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. This is the very word of God. May he bless it to us now. You may be seated. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for this, your word, your very practical and very needful instruction about the leadership and government of the church. And Father, would you give us grace now and would you give us ears to hear and hearts to believe, and indeed the strength to obey. Bless your church from generation to generation with humble, uh, able, uh, godly leaders. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Uh, remember now that uh, Paul is writing to Timothy throughout the letter, but surely in this portion, to instruct him about setting things in order in the church in Ephesus, that he might organize and govern the church and the church be led in a way that is according to scripture and that is pleasing to the Lord, the kind of church I'm sure you would agree we desire to have, one that is according to scripture, where our hearts are humble and sincere and where we seek to organize and run the church according to God's good instructions. Uh, let me call your attention to the first few words of verse 1 of chapter 3. This is a faithful saying. Uh, you've seen those exact same words once before. Uh, back in chapter 1, verse 15, perhaps you can see it there on your previous page, 
This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Do you remember it? That Christ Jesus came into the world uh, sinners to save. Uh, Paul uses the exact same uh, three words here. When we have the English rendering, this is a faithful saying without the accompanying uh, worthy of full acceptance. It adds a certain gravity, a certain seriousness to what Paul is saying here, and we'll have more to say about that in a little while, why Paul may have deemed it necessary to add uh, this preface uh, here. Uh, he says, if a man desires the position of a bishop, uh, that's how the New King James renders the Greek here, it is episcope, uh, related to episkopos, and we get our English word, or Episcopalian, or Episcopalianism, of course, from these Greek words. Uh, it can be translated bishop. Uh, literally, the word means, and is often translated, overseer. It is epi, upon or over, uh, scope or scopos, to see. In the Presbyterian Church, if you've been around us long enough, you probably know by now that we do not understand this as referring to a higher office or a different office from the office of elder in general. The word usually translated elder is, after all, the word presbyteros, from which we get the word Presbyterian, and it appears some 66 or perhaps 67 times uh, in the New Testament. Let me remind you of why it is that we hold that position and ask you to turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 and direct your attention first to verse 17. Let me remind you of the setting. Paul has called from Miletus uh, at the coast for the Ephesian elders. And they come to the shoreline to meet him at the harbor, and he has some very profound and very memorable words of instruction for them. But notice in verse 17 of Acts 20, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, which was just inland, and called for the elders of the church. This is presbyteros. Now skip a little bit further down to verse 28. He is now speaking to them. He has given them some sense of his ministry when he is among, has, was among them. And now he turns to them and to give them words of admonition and exhortation. And in verse 28 he says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, the church, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. This is... Episcopos. So he calls the same group of leaders in the church, presbyteros in verse 17, elder, and episcopos in verse 28, bishop or overseer. And incidentally, I would also draw your attention to what he says very, the very next breath in verse 28, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And so of the same group of men, he can, in verse 17, call them elders, or we can call them elders, presbyteros, 
uh, overseers, uh, episkopos, and also, in the verbal form, shepherds, uh, in verse 28. Bring all three together. The elder, the presbyteros, is to be a well-regarded, mature male member of the congregation who has the duties of shepherding the souls of God's people and of the care and oversight of their souls. And let's turn forward one more time to one more passage that I think makes this even more clear. First Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5. Remember what we've said now that presbyteros and episkopos refer to one and the same office and the words are used for the same uh, individuals, leaders in the church. First Peter verse 5, the elders who are among you, that is presbyteros, I exhort. Notice what Peter says, I who am uh, a fellow elder. Presbuteros, again, although he adds a prefix here uh, that means with or together. Now I could take a little jab here and say Peter clearly does not refer to himself as the first pope, does not consider himself as occupying a higher or more authoritative office than the elders to whom he writes. He calls them elders, and he calls himself a fellow elder. And then verse 2, look there. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Just like we saw in Acts 20, 28. And then serving as overseers. Episcopos. So of the same office holders, he can call them Elder, presbyteros, shepherd, pastor, and episcopos, or bishop, uh, or overseer. And I just would remind you that Peter urges these men who hold this office not to lord it over those entrusted to their care, verse 3 but to be humble servants of Jesus Christ, to be, as he puts it, examples to the flock of the humility and of the compassion and of the grace of our Lord Jesus. By the way, just as a personal aside, these passages and others like them cause us Presbyterians to scratch our heads a little bit when our brethren in other denominations and traditions some Baptist churches or independent churches do not have the office of elder in their congregations. We, we wonder about that uh, sometimes when it seems to us so clear in the New Testament that the church is to find men who are mature and able to serve in this role of spiritual oversight and teaching and to lay hands on them for the betterment of the souls of the people of God. Now, the foundation of these New Testament offices in the church uh, goes back, if you will, to Acts chapter 6. And so let's take a moment and refresh our memory uh, about that time in 
the beginning of the book of Acts, when the church was in Jerusalem, and an event that happened that helps us understand the offices of elder and of deacon and of their scriptural foundation, I think, even more clearly. And you will remember the story. Uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now, in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, uh, the church was growing, there arose a complaint. Uh, so even in the best churches, there are unhappy people at times who complain uh, again, uh, against the Hebrews by the Hellenist, Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. You remember what was happening. The church in Jerusalem was growing. There were those Christian believers from a Jewish or Hebrew background, and there were those Christian believers from a uh, more Hellenic, uh, Hel Hellenist or Greek-speaking uh, background. And when it came to the distribution of food, to the, to the, to the help of the church, to the needy widows, uh, those from the Hellenistic or Greek-speaking background uh, felt as if they were being overlooked or slighted and that the Hebraic, the Hebrew-speaking, probably Aramaic-speaking widows were being favored. And so a complaint arose. This is a very practical, very real-life matter. Verse 2, then the twelve, the twelve apostles, Judas now having been replaced back in chapter 1 by Matthias, summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, I'll have something to say about that uh, in just a moment. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And notice the miracle of miracles in verse 5, the saying, please, the whole multitude. <laughs> The whole congregation uh, was in agreement and added their hearty amen. Uh, I would love if all congregational meetings and presbytery meetings uh, went just like that. Verse 2 sounds, I suppose, uh, condescending. The apostles say, uh, we don't want to wait on tables. Uh, we must not leave the ministry of the word of God. It shouldn't be taken that way. This is the division of labor in the church, and it's a good thing. It's a God-ordained thing. What they are saying, in essence, is this. Jesus Christ has called us fundamentally and primarily to a ministry of the word, to teaching the word of God, and to prayer. It is not desirable of us. We refuse because of our understanding of this primary calling from Jesus Christ to compromise that or to abandon that and engage in a different ministry uh, which would make render us incapable of fully realizing the call of Jesus Christ to us to pray and to teach the word of God. And you see that very clearly in verses 2 and 4. It is an important ministry that must be done. It is a ministry that is not to be neglected. But the apostles say it is not for us to undertake this, but to find men who will be capable of doing so. And we will give ourselves, they say, continually 
to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And I can't preach a sermon on this tonight, but it does remind the elders of the church, doesn't it, of the fundamental character of their work. It is a spiritual one, and it fundamentally regards the ministry of the word of God and the ministry of prayer. Heaven help us if we ever lose sight of that and if it loses the centrality uh, in our work. And by the way, we have uh, set aside one of our, every other one of our session meetings uh, as a prayer meeting. We generally conduct relatively little business. Uh, what is it, brothers, in our odd month session meeting? because we want to pray for the congregation and we want to have you come and have us pray for you when you're in need. So this Tuesday evening, it's the third Tuesday of the month, it's an odd month, and we are gathering primarily uh, for prayer. And if you need prayer, if you are sick, if you are hurting, you come to us and we will be delighted uh, to pray for you and God may heal you and will forgive all of our sins. So remember uh, the wisdom of what they did. Uh, they did not show contempt for waiting on tables. Uh, they said this matter must be addressed, but find wise, spirit-filled men who will do the work. And I would just add in passing, I'm sure I mentioned it before, uh, the names that you will find there of men who were chosen are Greek names. That tells you something about how seriously they took the complaint and they did not want the Hellenistic widows to feel that they were unimportant or their concerns were not being addressed. But it's an understanding of primary calling. And we understand this to be foundational then for the office of elder and deacon, the office of apostle, that spiritual ministry of word and of prayer, giving rise or foundational for that of elder. And these seven chosen men uh, giving rise or providing foundation for the office of deacon, men of humility and men of compassion who will attend to the physical needs of the church and to the needy uh, among God's uh, people. But let's come back now to 1 Timothy, and I want to spend some time with you this evening thinking about what Paul says uh, in 1 Timothy 3.1, that, quote, if a man desires the position of a bishop or overseer, that... Uh, he desires uh, a good work. Notice, first of all, that it is uh, a good work. Uh, it is a good work uh, because to teach the word of God uh, to God's people, uh, to shepherd uh, the flock of Jesus Christ, is a good work. It is the most important work uh, in the world. Uh, there is no higher calling than the minister or the elder or the overseer. And beloved, that is not a slam of other calls and other vocations, which are also good and legitimate in the sight of God. But it's a reminder of how important faithful Bible teachers are to the church and how important godly leadership is to the health of the church. We were reminded of that this morning by Dr. Truman as the leadership goes, so goes the nation. Or I don't know if it's vice versa. As the nation goes, so goes the leadership. But we could say it of the church. As the leadership of the church goes, so goes 
the church. We were reminded of that this morning, about the downgrade period of the judges and that profound example of that in Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who engaged in profane bribery. I think that was the term that Dr. Truman used, and sexual immorality, and even invited women into temple prostitution in the very house of God as they mixed that with worship and sacrifice. The people were in such a bad way spiritually, and they had very bad uh, leadership. I don't know if it's a chicken and egg thing. I don't know which comes first. It's hard to say, but it seems like the two often go together. So I take it as axiomatic that good, godly, mature spiritual leadership is essential for the health of the people of God. And that is why Paul says here that to shepherd God's people and to exercise oversight in the flock of God, to teach the word of God is good work. It is necessary work. It is the best and highest work. And it should be done for the glory of God and to benefit the church of Jesus Christ. But notice, too, it is a work. It requires work and effort and labor and diligence. Both John Calvin and Matthew Henry were careful to point this out. It is not merely a title or a position that the church confers. Much less is it a status that the state gives to a man. He's not merely given a title to enjoy or a position to assume, but a work, a labor, for so the work, uh, the word means. He doesn't sit in an ivory tower. We sometimes use that language. He doesn't put on a priestly garment or a bishop's hat and sit in eminence over the people as we've seen far too often in church history. It is a work. It requires work. If pastors ever give the impression that they only work a few hours on Sunday, shame on them. It should not be so. Our pastor in Michigan, I remember very well, was often criticized for working too hard and perhaps neglecting his family and his needs at home, his personal life even, that he spent too much time at the church. It reminds us it's a balance. It may change, I suppose, in different seasons as children age, but it's a work. I don't know if you remember or if you've read Victor Hugo's masterpiece, Les Miserables. If you're only familiar with the musical, you will not know as much about the bishop as you will have if you've read the novel. But he devotes at least the first 50 pages. It might be the first 75 to 100 pages to the character of the good bishop, the one whose grace and forgiveness will ultimately change Jean Valjean's life forever. But this man was not a figurehead. He was not a mere title holder. His, in Hugo's telling, was a work. He was tireless in his visitation of those in his parish. 
many of whom lived in tiny, distant mountain villages. And he had to cross valley and river and stream and mountain just to get to them to visit them. Sick widows and elderly widowers, a man in prison who was about to be executed, he spent several days with, tending to his soul before his death. It was a moving account of a bishop who understood his calling not to be a mere title or a position of influence, but a work. But what about this idea of desiring the office? I want to key in on that now with you for a moment. Paul entertains this idea that a man will desire the eldership that he will, in some sense at least, aspire to the position of an overseer or of a bishop, that something in his heart or in his mind will tell him uh, to seek this office, that it will not only seek him, but that he will, in some sense, seek it. And I want you to think about that tonight, dear friends, in light of any number of cases we know about from the Bible, where it seems as if, in the vast majority of cases, perhaps in almost every case, God seems to come to a man in Scripture and tap him on the shoulder and call him to ministry and to the ministry of the Word, even if that man does not seem to be in any way seeking such a ministry. Consider Moses. When the Lord appeared to him and tapped him on the shoulder and identified him as the one who was to speak to Pharaoh and minister as a prophet the word of God to the people, do you remember the story? Does it seem as if Moses was actively seeking the position? You remember what happens. Well, who are you, Lord? And when they ask, uh, who shall I say sent me? And what if they don't believe me when I speak to them? And remember his great feeling of inadequacy. In fact, turn with me. Hold your place in 1 Timothy if you can. But turn with me to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. Yahweh has appeared to Moses at the burning bush. He is speaking to him. He is calling him. And Moses says finally in verse 10 of Exodus chapter 4, then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent. You know what that means, young people? I don't speak very well. I'm not articulate. I'm not a good public speaker. I never have been. I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Isn't that astonishing? God takes credit not only for creating men with their abilities, but even with their deficiencies, 
Have not I, the Lord, he is not ashamed to say so. We are. He is not. Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth. (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? And teach you what you shall say. But he said, oh my Lord, something else. Please send by the hand of whomever else uh, you may send. Oh, God, please pick somebody else. (laughs) Well, it was building. So the anger of the Lord, this is the first time we read that, was kindled against Moses. And he said, is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. Then look, he is also coming out to meet you when he sees you. And he will be glad in his heart. Moses is overwhelmed with the enormity of the task. Its inherent challenges and dangers even. And by a great sense of personal inadequacy. I can't do this, Lord. What you ask is too much for me. I don't have the necessary gifts of speech. Won't you please tap somebody else on the shoulder and use someone else other than me? Remember what happens when Isaiah receives his call, when he's given a vision of the transcendent glory of the Lord filling the heavenly temple. The angels are covering their faces and their mouths and their feet and they are crying, holy, holy, holy. The doorposts are shaking and the whole temple is being filled with smoke. And what does Isaiah say in Isaiah chapter 6? Woe is me. I am undone. Or I am ruined. He's falling apart. I am a man of unclean lips, he says. And I live among a people of unclean lips. This is the prophet of God. The holy man. Acknowledging his filth. The dirtiness of his mouth. And that of his fellow Israelite. And it is only when his lips are touched and cleansed by a coal from the fire, you remember, only when he is told that his sins have been forgiven, that he can say, here I am, Lord, send me. But it's an overwhelming sense of his own sinfulness when he is called and of his own unsuitability to serve the Lord as a prophet. The call is unsettling and unnerving, this call. It makes him aware even further of his sin. We might mention Jeremiah. Turn there. Jeremiah chapter 1. You'll remember this. Again, uh, there's no mention whatsoever that he was 
seeking the prophetic office. And when the word of the Lord comes to him in Jeremiah 1.5, look there with me, Jeremiah 1.4, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. The Lord foreknew this, sovereignly purposed this, and set him apart and ordained him to the prophetic ministry. And Jeremiah is told that much. And yet he says, beginning in verse 6, Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. I'm too young to do this. Moses, not a good enough public speaker. Isaiah, I'm too big of a sinner. Jeremiah, I'm too young. Verse 7, the Lord said to me, do not say that. My slight paraphrase. <laughs> you know, we need to say that, I think, to each other sometimes. Don't say that. <laughs> Don't say I'm a youth. Why? For you shall go to all whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces. For I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. You're going to go where I tell you to go. You're going to say what I tell you to say. You're going to speak to the ones to whom I send you. Don't say you're too young. I will be with you to deliver you. Now, I'd love to talk about more examples. Ezekiel's call is a favorite. Imagine this one. Uh, Ezekiel, uh, I'm commanding you to go to an obstinate, stiff-necked, rebellious people. And when you speak my word to them, they will not listen. But I want you to speak it to them anyway. Now, there's a call. And it's a bitter word of judgment and woe. A word that few men would want to preach. And so he has to take the word of God, its scroll into his mouth. And he has to eat it and chew it and swallow it and digest it. And will then find that it is sweet as honey. The word of God to him. We could multiply examples, but you see the pattern. When God comes to a man and taps him on the shoulder and calls him to the ministry of the word to be God's spokesman to the people, they are uniformly overwhelmed by feelings of inadequacy and incompetence and personal sinfulness. They do not feel capable or up to the task. They don't feel prepared as if they have the requisite gifts. They are often overcome and undone 
by feelings of inability, such that the Lord has to speak again to them to encourage and lift them up and often do something dramatic like cleanse their lips or feed him the scroll or they would not have done it. And I think you can look to the New Testament and see the same thing. What were the apostles doing when Jesus Christ called them? Were they actively seeking the ministry, desiring the apostleship? Or were they busy at work fishing and tax collecting? Whatever they were doing. What about Paul himself? Was he actively seeking the ministry when Christ called him? You know the answer to that one. So I want you to see, beloved, there is a certain sovereign character to all of this. A certain divine calling or initiative or ordination, to use the word from Jeremiah, that is involved when a man is called to the ministry. God calls. He taps on the shoulder. He selects. He chooses often what appear to us to be rather unlikely vessels. That is why I think that Paul says in Acts 20, 28, the verse we read, that those who serve the Lord as elders are men who have been made by the Holy Spirit to be overseers. They are literally, therefore, spirit-made men. They couldn't do it otherwise. Whatever their innate deficiencies and inadequacies, the Spirit of God has sovereignly, even unilaterally, we might say, called them to ministry, often in spite of themselves, not because of themselves. And surely he made them to be what they must be to faithfully serve the Lord. And it was often fraught with challenges and difficulties, as you know. You remember what the prophet Hosea was asked to do. Hosea was asked by the Lord, by Yahweh, to marry a woman of harlotry, a prostitute. Again, the man of God. So that his life and his marriage would be a living illustration, a living sermon of Israel's idolatry, of her unfaithfulness, of her spiritual adultery and betrayal of the Lord. He was to live that in his home, in his marriage, in his family, with his wife, a woman of ill repute to illustrate Israel's apostasy. Ezekiel was forced to lie on his left side for 390 days, uh, putting the sins of the people on his side, uh, each day representing uh, a year of Israel's iniquity. And then he was to lie down on his right side for 40 days, each day representing a year of Judah's iniquity. This way he was to symbolically bear the sins of the people. He was to cook his food on the fuel of human waste burning to represent the defilement of the people of God. And when he protested, the Lord was gracious enough 
to permit him to cook his food over cow dung instead. This is how the prophets identified with the people and with their sins. They reenacted Israel in their own lives and how the people had treated the Lord. And so they were subject to humiliation and ridicule and violence and even death. And they were aware of their own weaknesses. We just saw that, numerous examples. They felt their inadequacies for the task. They generally do not seem to have been seeking the call when God called them. So how can Paul speak of men desiring the office of overseer? I've often wondered whether we do men a disservice, I've shared this with you before, when they come to the presbytery seeking the gospel ministry. They've studied up. They've prepared for their examinations well. They report to us, to a man, that they feel called to the ministry. What if we were to say to them, Young man, do you know that you are a called man? And how do you know that you are a called man? Young man, do you have any idea what this call is going to involve and what it may cost you? What if these feelings of being led to the ministry pass What if the ministry does not afford you the feelings of fulfillment that you are now envisioning? How do you, in fact, know that you are called by God to this? These are hard questions. I was ordained in June of 2003. I probably would have run out of that room if they would have asked me (laughs) those questions. Maybe some of these things are best not known at the beginning, but they, they must be asked. And I'll tell you without hesitation again, Dr. Truman echoed this, we ordain more men than are actually called to the ministry. We don't always get it right before they've proven themselves, before they've had time to sort some of this out before they're mature enough to know the difference between the call and a feeling. And that often does fade. I want to read to you, this is a remarkable passage from Calvin. Uh, Just a brief portion of his comments on these verses. He entertains the possibility that a man will initially sense a call to the ministry that will even be recognized by the church and then for that to change. This is Calvin, and it turns, and if it turn out that according to the lawful order they are not called, let them know that such was the will of God and let them not take it in that others have been preferred to them, but they who without any selfish motive shall have no other wish than to serve God and the church will be affected in this manner. 
and at the same time will have such modesty that they will not be at all envious if others be preferred to them uh, as being more worthy. Nevertheless, with all of this in mind, Paul can say, if a man desires to serve the Lord in this way, if he knows the call which he is undertaking, if he seeks to glorify God as an elder in the church, if he has put his heart to seek this office, and I might add, if he pursues it with the right motives and a right understanding of what it is, Paul can indeed say he desires a good and noble and necessary work. Paul himself had feelings of inadequacy. In 2 Corinthians 2, he asked this question, who is sufficient for these things when speaking about the gospel ministry? And in chapter 4, verse 1 of that same book of 2 Corinthians, after speaking of the difficulties and hardships of the pastoral work and its challenges, not least of which is the spiritual blindness of men to the gospel, he says this, Nevertheless, we do not lose heart since we have this ministry. And he adds, we have it by mercy. We have it by grace. The Christ who gave it to us by mercy, Paul says, will make us sufficient for it by his mercy. And I want to relate that as we close to what we learned this weekend about the cross-shaped Christian life from Dr. Truman and from Martin Luther. We are not triumphalists in ministry, are we? There's a temptation at Presbytery meetings and at General Assembly meetings and when we speak with other pastors about our ministry, how great it's going. But we feel our weakness and our frailty. We acknowledge in humility, we even despair of ourselves. But that's the theology of the cross that we learned about. The power of God is in the cross. It's in weakness. It's in humility. One of the most profound things we heard from uh, this weekend is that Luther discovered that once we finally despair of ourselves, and only then have we truly understood the gospel and the righteousness and grace of Christ, this is what every elder, uh, every overseer, every pastor, every minister feels. I believe I'm called to this work. I desire this good work. But oh, I feel my weakness. I don't feel adequate or sufficient for these things. But in my weakness... Christ is my strength. In my foolishness, Christ is my wisdom. And in my sin, he is my righteousness. The first verb Paul uses 
literally means to stretch oneself out unto this. And the second one is a strong desire. So clearly, I do not want to diminish this, it is a clear and decisive sense of call. But no man in his right mind, aware of his sins and shortcomings, would ever aspire to this office unless he knew Christ would meet him in his weakness and make him by his grace competent where he is incompetent and adequate where he is inadequate. For it's a ministry that we have by mercy alone and not because of ourselves. Now, how do you think that will impact how a man serves? Think on that this week, and we'll discuss it next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this portion of your word, and we pray that we would now humbly and eagerly receive this instruction in our hearts for your glory and for our good. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.